welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. And today on the show, I've got a guest and a person who's become a good friend in the e-commerce space for a while, and that is Kelsey Lyric, the co-founder and CEO of 365 Holdings, an aggregator that currently has, if I'm not mistaken, nine brands in their portfolio. They have taken the aggregator model and done all kinds of cool stuff with it. Kelsey and his team have continuing to acquire, continuing to grow, and even putting on a conference for aggregators and and holding companies like what they are doing there. And today we are gonna talk about the aggregator model, the Holdco model, which is obviously something that if you know my story, you know I've been very involved in. I've been a CEO of 4400, a holding company aggregator. And so I wanna talk with Kelsey a little bit about sort of like where are the pitfalls in this model, but also where does it work? I've talked a lot about mistakes I've made at 4400 in the past, and I'm sure we'll get to those today as well. But Kelsey is doing it, and their team is is building something really impressive. And so I wanna hear also the positives and, and how that goes. So we'll talk with Kelsey about the details of that, how they're running and growing businesses, what they look for in a good business, all those kinds of things from the perspective of somebody who is looking at and running nine e-commerce businesses at a time. Let's not delay it any longer. Let us jump in with Kelsey. Kelsey, how are you, man? Great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I was glad to do it. I mean, we actually got to meet in person just a couple weeks ago, which was which was nice. And I believe this came out of that, right? We were just, I think we were just talking and you were like, yeah, let's follow up on the podcast and let's talk about all of this stuff there. I highly recommend uh, people attend live events and meet your internet friends in person. Uh, They are much cooler in real life than uh, in the DMs. Uh, The DMs are good, but go to events and and see people. It's worthwhile. Yeah. And we've talked before, obviously you did an episode with me on the e-commerce playbook. And so it wasn't, I didn't feel as new as it has with some people, but it is really great. Like I actually just had Andrew Darian on as well and talked to him about the e-commerce fuel community and what makes it so good and, and all those kinds of things. And it just really- Yeah, but on Zoom, I didn't know you were like a six foot, six inch giant. And now I know you're actually quite <laughs> tall. So these are the things that happen when you meet in real life. Yeah, I'm, I'm not six, six either. I'm like six, three, six, four, something like that. But so yeah, pretty, six, four is pretty tall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of forget that I'm tall, actually, because I've just sort of been tall for a while. And then people will reflect that back to me. And it's like, oh, I guess I guess I am, you know, so also lanky. I look taller. I'm deceptively maybe not as tall as I look. I don't know. Anyway, Kelsey, tell people a little bit about 365 and just kind of the story, anything to give people some context for your business and all that. For sure. Six years ago, my business partner, uh, his name is Justin. He and I bought our first e-commerce business with an SBA loan. And prior to that, we had a bunch of what I would call like side hustle businesses. We had three or four of them. They were between 20,000 and 100,000 each of revenue. And we had like a laptop lifestyle where we made a decent living for our families, but we didn't have a, a real business, I would say. We managed to sell one of them. We took all the proceeds, no reservation for taxes or anything, and just rolled it right into a, a deal. We went looking for businesses not focused on e-commerce. We just looked for a good company to buy found one we felt we could operate, the value we thought was fair, we could finance. And then 90 days after we bought that, we drained the checking account, maxed the line of credit, and bought another e-commerce business. And this was like the beginning of us saying, we're gonna be e-commerce people. And this was like uh, about six years ago now. Uh, at the time, there was no like big vision for the business that we have today. I'm proud of where we've gotten to. There's nine brands in the portfolio, uh, a little over 100 people around the globe, mostly centered in Akron, Ohio, kind of 50 or so full-time employees in the office, 30 or so in warehouse and production. We've got some global contractors and, and VAs, things like that. Yeah, it's been quite the journey. We've done it all without outside equity. We've financed it kind of with retained earnings and, and borrowing along the way. And uh, it's been an exciting 
journey to learn and build an e-commerce. I'd like to say maybe before the aggregator thing was was cool, before it was a, a coined term. It's been quite the journey. I don't think I knew that you were not like, that you didn't have a like an aggregator thesis when you started. I think that's news to me right now. I don't think I realize that. It sounds like you, I mean, would you frame it that way? We always had a multi-business thesis. So like as harebrained entrepreneurs, uh, I'm more the, um, between Justin and I, Justin like runs the business. So historically, Kelsey did sales and marketing, Justin did ops. As that's evolved, it's Kelsey's the CEO, podcasts, strategy, deals, financing, capital allocation, that kind of thing. And then Justin runs the team. We all report to him. He runs the day-to-day. But the two of us, what we have in common is like a really opportunistic view of the world of a little bit of shiny object syndrome, like all good entrepreneurs looking for new challenges. And a portfolio of businesses has always been fun. The common thread today is that they all sell consumer products on the internet, uh, utilizing e-commerce, D2C as the primary sales channel. Yeah, let's go back then. So why multi-business? This is like the fundamental thing I've come back to with aggregators and like some context for this conversation is in part here that like, as I've continued to assess my experience at 4400 in retrospect and compare that with the continuing experiences of working with other brands and all those kinds of things, if there's a slider bar between 4x400's failures, and and like I sometimes call it a failure, but like actually like (laughs) the brand that's left there is actually a very good business and still growing and all that stuff. So it was a pivot more than a true failure, but definitely turned out really differently than what we expected with the model. But when, when I assess that and when I look at the things that went wrong there, my slider bar initially has been at times very much all the way over towards the model is the problem. And it's starting to move more and more and more towards Andrew was the problem. And that's a very short way of saying it, right? Like I'm not the only person and there's all kinds of problems with, with, but what I mean is like our individual execution of it as opposed to like the model as the problem. That slider bar is moving towards the individual execution increasingly for me. And so that's kind of the, some of the context of this conversation. I told like Kelsey when we talked about this, let's just talk about like why aggregators can work essentially and, and go. So so let me ask you the question. Now that you've been in it for longer and you've had this multi-business thing, why not focus on your biggest and best opportunities? Make the case that it's a better use of your time and money to grow multiple businesses instead of focusing on the best opportunities within those. Because I'm sure of your nine businesses, some of them are outsized opportunities relative to the others. And I'm sure you see that. So why keep the portfolio? Why not focus on just your A players? Yeah, I would maybe slightly modify your slider bar to say maybe less Andrew and maybe more specific implementation of a few precise things that maybe you've talked about or that I've observed maybe more sure. the issue than the aggregator thesis. And I, yeah, I'm not trying to like crap on myself here. Like, like I just mean like, is it the thesis or is it the execution? And that's what I'm saying. And like, yeah, some For of sure. that is me. Of course, I was a CEO, but like, that's what I that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamental to any of these business models is a question around like capitalization and the goals of the business and its objectives. And to date, since Justin and I as founders have sought to build a business for ourselves that uh, we enjoy showing up to work in where we get to hire uh, and retain and enjoy working with high performers in an in-office setting in Ohio of all places. That's where we live, that's where our families are. And as entrepreneurs, we want to have a multi-business experience. Our business serves our needs well. We are happy with the capitalization, with the growth rate, with the profitability, we make a good living, all of those things. I constantly scan the horizon wondering whether or not there is 
an outlier outcome within our current portfolio or one that will be achieved in the future and how we should think about that through time. My prediction is by the end of this year, we will make some strategic shift. We can't run nine businesses this year the way we ran six last year or four the two years before that. Like We've had evolution through time and I think we'll continue to kind of evolve this. The real thing that traces through all of that though is an alignment between capital and strategy. What Justin and I as the owners of the business and the executives who are driving forward strategy and leading the day-to-day in our own respective ways is that there's an alignment there. If Justin and I ever write a book, it won't be about like the deals we did or the marketing and be that we pulled off like a good long-running partnership. The two guys who met at a random like networking event had similar stage of life, similar risk tolerance and similar goals yet are like wildly different humans if you get us in a room together. Like we've just managed to have a great working relationship. So I think the alignment of capital and strategy against the business objective. So do I own businesses today in the portfolio that like, I don't know, all things being equal, we should probably sell? Yeah, I think we do. And I think we'll, we'll do that eventually. But if our aspiration is to build a company we enjoy working at with a, a high performing team, you need enough revenue to support that team. You need enough earnings base to get that business financed through lenders. So there's a bit of a method to the madness and I think it'll continue to evolve kind of through time, but all things being equal, I would be incredibly bored and miserable running one business and one business only. That's probably a me problem. So I built a business that compensates for my me problem. That is a really different answer than what I expected you to give, but I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic answer. If I can repeat it back. Go ahead, but I'm also curious what answer you expected. No, it's a good question. I thought your answer was going to be more economic or something, you know, because like the, the classic argument for an aggregator is that it's EBITDA arbitrage, basically. If there's a really compelling capital allocation case to be made for an ag- aggregator, and I think the case goes like this. If the multiple on $5 million in EBITDA is better than the multiple on $1 million in EBITDA, then I can either try to grow myself a $5 million EBITDA business, or I could buy five $1 million EBITDA businesses at those multiples. Like let's say I can get, let's say I can buy those for 5X EBITDA, let's say $1 million businesses, right? That would be a great take for somebody with a $1 million EBITDA business right, right now in the current market, or decent take anyway. If I can buy five of them at 5X multiple and package them up into one company of five, one company that owns five businesses that is now has a combined 5 million in EBITDA, I can probably turn around and sell that $5 million EBITDA aggregator for, I don't know, 8x EBITDA or something like that. And so so there's just like an arbitrage opportunity around the ability to grow a bigger thing because larger market investors, larger players in the market for, you know, M&A and e-commerce want larger businesses. And so I think that's one of the arguments. It's not the only argument. There's some other arguments around efficiency, but that's one of the arguments I hear a lot. And that's not what at all what you said. Yeah, so two observations. I think you're correct with an asterisk that a aggregator story like you just described of five million EBITDA having arbitrage versus one, I think is true in certain theses or certain business models that are focused. If you were to go roll up five CPG businesses that have this amazing growth track, some CPG buyer would want to buy those things at a premium multiple to have them disparate. But if I look at my portfolio today or the legacy portfolio you ran at 4x400, there wasn't that common market and customer base product line. There wasn't true strategic fit there. And so I think that one of the things that happens is you, me, people on the internet talk about e-commerce like it's an industry. E-commerce is not an industry, even though we all pretend that it is. There's no like NAICS industry code for I have a Shopify store. We have a product business, consumer packaged goods, consumer discretionary goods, that has a primary go-to-market sales channel 
of e-commerce transactions, not brick and mortar retail distribution, Amazon and, and D2C. That's a very different description of a business than a quote unquote e-commerce aggregator, multiple arbitrage, financial machine. And so I wonder and hope if one day we will find that multiple arbitrage. I don't think it's present in our business today. I'm currently trying to figure out if our business will, be, will eventually one day be valuable to somebody as a whole, or if our business will really be valuable as a machine through which we can run a playbook of buying healthy businesses, buying distressed businesses, growing them, financing them, holding on to them for a long period of time for cash flow. There's a lot of ways you can create value out of a group of businesses, all of which is fun and exciting. But I'm currently searching for what that overarching business model should be. We've arrived at this like decent run rate of revenue, a team we're proud of, a business that I'm, I'm proud to own and operate. But it's not clear to me what that playbook is. There's a well-trodden playbook for private equity, well-trodden playbook for raising venture capital. I don't think anybody's proven an aggregator playbook just yet on a diversified basis. Maybe somebody will, maybe it'll be me, I, I don't know. I think the examples where it's proven is very end market specific or technology specific. And hopefully I'm lucky enough to find one of those along the way. So that's interesting. You don't, I mean, if you, you think if you sold 365 as one entity right now, you don't think the multiple on your current EBITDA would be better than on the individual businesses being sold off at their the individual brands being sold off, I should say. Yeah, I haven't tried either. So this is like yeah. me hypothecating because I haven't gone down that path or not looking to exit the business. I'm not convinced that that'd be the case. I, I would be yeah. pleasantly surprised if there was some buyer out there that really wanted a premium. I, that's not obvious or apparent to me that that would be the case. It, it is, yeah. I know for sure I could take it all apart and sell it. Again, I don't want to do that. I'm not sure if I wanted to sell the whole thing to somebody on some terms, who that would be or why they would pay more than taking it apart. Again, we're early in the journey. I think we have a lot of building to do and we're gonna make progress and changes through time and continue to figure this out. I think moving up market with transactions, starting to sell small ones and buy bigger ones through time will be helpful. Building centers of excellence around certain end markets or niche categories will be helpful. But our biggest screen has just been like high quality businesses. A lot of moat, hard digits intermediate, complicated operations or supply chain has been really beneficial for us to find businesses we just think are really durable. They'll always have demand and we're always gonna generate revenue with them. We just need to hold on to them for a long time and run them really profitably. Yeah, so I'm tempted to go chase that down, but I just wanna put a button on the conversation we were kind of just having there first, which is your actual answer relative to what I just said about the aggregate, whether or not my arbitrage thesis is right or wrong. And it's not really my thesis, it's actually like other people's thesis getting into this. And you also did hit on the other thing, which is that like this, the other hypothetical is that by combining a bunch of businesses into one, you can generate some real skills at operating e-commerce businesses that translate across the portfolio. And therefore you can multiply the value of those skills across more brands in a way where there'd be diminishing returns on doing that in just one brand. So essentially like that's another big part of the aggregator hypothesis. I think that's, that's probably the second major leg in it. I think we get as much operating leverage through shared services and benefit as we lose in lack of focus on the number one most important needle moving thing. I think if those two things are on net a zero. For every synergy we get, there is one lack of focus that is a unlock not found. And I think on average over a long period of time, my observation is we're roughly flat on both of those. It's great that we don't have to hire another customer service person or another marketer to add a brand. It also means that now that CS rep and that marketer are now splitting their time and there's some diminished outcome and it kind of cuts both ways in my opinion, at least at our scale today, maybe one day that won't be the case. 
Yeah, so what I would say to that is that I think netting zero on that trade-off, netting break-even there, is a really big win for an aggregator. Because I think that second concept is, it actually may be true that you can get some advantages with shared services and operating leverage in the ways that you're talking about, but it's incredibly hard. And when I think about that slider bar I was describing earlier between my mistakes and not, I think one of the places where I can see my mistakes the biggest and the most clearly, and this is where I personally will actually own these, is that that was just much harder to do than I expected to create operating leverage via skills across the portfolio of businesses. I think that we actually didn't get that in the ways that we should have, even in the places where we were strongest, like for example, marketing and ads and those kinds of things, which is which is some of those things. I would say now, I, the reason the slider is starting to move back towards that is that I think that like, oh wait, actually, I think now I've developed more point of view and more clear conviction on a few things that's more teachable about how I would go back and do that if I could take that back, that would probably work better than it did, but it still might net to zero. That's the thing. Like I think we were net negative on the lack of focus because we weren't getting the operating leverage we had. We just had the lack of focus and that's it. And so- I'm good with, with our net zero. So I'm good with our net zero outcome and I'll, I'll take it as a compliment, but you think it's a good thing because I think fundamentally it gives us a de-risk diversified earnings base. If we look at all the businesses that are uncorrelated, therefore we don't get synergies on some enterprise value exit multiple or whatever, but we have like different demand drivers. They have different seasonality, different supply chains. They're just different. And so revenue ebbs and flows, but the cost structure can flex. When we have projects in one business, we can move resources to them towards and away different things. And it lets our earnings on at least a quarterly basis, definitely annual, maybe, maybe monthly, as our earnings be more stable because we can flex resources to the highest and best use today. Because if you've ever run one business, like sometimes they're like, I don't know what to do this week. Like I'm just out of ideas and like marginal hours of effort aren't gonna get me there. I do think that's one way where when we net to zero on synergies and focus, we can at least allocate to the highest and best use with a really broad field of uses. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes with the aggregator thing, I hear people, talk about disparate businesses as a problem in aggregators but that's it's interesting that you're framing it up as actually like a part of what makes yours work which is that like you're sort of de-risked by having these very different businesses whereas like it's also theoretically interesting to go to an aggregator where you actually build a bunch of companies that are in a similar category so you could share supply chain and create some economy of scale there or you could you know whatever or like the marketing approach is relatively similar but it seems like i think we're back saying, to capitalization if you're capitalizing right. your business to sell a athletic wear thing like you're going to ebb and flow off of athletic wear valuations if you have one athletic wear one pet one kids and one food like you're very diverse and so i think when go back to the beginning of like justin and i wanted a business we wanted to run certain lifestyle goals, cash flow, autonomy, no outside investors, shareholders, or executives to answer to beyond ourselves and our values. That was a driving factor that took us to this diversified, lower risk way to accomplish our goal. Well, so that great that you brought that back, because that's actually the, the thing that struck me about your answer was that you really describe your answer in terms of individual lifestyle goals. And I, I mean, you and I haven't talked about this, but I, I really commend you for that. Like the first question I ask people when I almost always, when I do consulting projects or I do managed services, any kind of client relationship where I'm really trying to help them get to where they want to go is where are you trying to go? It's a very hard question for many people to answer. It sounds like a simple question. Like, well, what are you trying to build? But actually, I still am not sure I know my answer. I just know my answer for today. 
Well, but that's pretty good. Know your answer for today is pretty good. And I, and what I'll say is you are speaking to it with more clarity, which is like we have some things that we really care about. Lifestyle, the, the business problems are interesting. We work with people we like. We don't report to outside investors. All of those things reflect goals for your business in a way that you know you can cash flow the way you want to. Those all reflect goals for your business in a way that I think is, is really awesome. Because a lot of times when I ask that question, what people say is, I, I just want to grow up bigger. Like, you know, and then the, the bar constantly gets higher and like all these, you know, and there's, it's really hard to help them accomplish that because it is hard to know like what you want. One other interesting observation, you were talking about your perception of the aggregator thesis, and you come at this from a performance marketing, D2C focused background, but really, in, in my view, the 101 commerce of the world, the Thrasios of the world, kind of the Amazon side of e-commerce started this notion of raising capital, aggregating earnings, and some expectation of future arbitrage through IPO or SPAC, or whatever their, their liquidity event might be. It was never obvious to me that that should work that those businesses could fund a business model predicated on venture capital infusion and venture scale returns through EBITDA arbitrage. If that was a good idea, we're still waiting for one of them to, to prove that out. We'll see what happens. But that is essentially what I heard you say was your view of the world. I think that might be the punchline for today's conversational recording is like, I've always come at this differently and that's kind of why we look like an odd duck in quote unquote aggregator land with no outside capital, no remote work in Ohio, like all these kind of non-traditional things for quote unquote e-commerce. Probably comes back to like us building the business we wanted, not one that matched a pattern by the latest like press release from TechCrunch or something, which we got nothing wrong with that. Just it's a different way of doing things. Yeah, it's funny. I would say the 4x400 thesis started as a bunch of agency people going like, we're really good at winning for other brands. Why don't we try to eat on both sides of that table? Like, if we like are getting at least once a month, I'm like, we should start an agency. We should, like we, we run marketing for our brands. We can do it for somebody else. Yeah, don't. Let me just give you a piece of strong, friendly advice. Don't do that. That is where your shiny object syndrome is taking you too far. No, but like you know, the, the notion there was like we're just losing margin because why don't we make the margin on the product and the service instead of just the service? And that also was wrong. So <laughs> it turns out it's like a it's, it's just a fundamentally different business is the problem. It's just, everything about it runs really differently. The question is like, where does value accrue to in a business model? In the value chain, who extracts the most economic rent from an or from this experience where customer exchanges money for product? And that's probably why we're vertically integrated. Like no vendors, no agencies, contractors are basically uh, FTEs, just global, like no real outside cost centers. Like we don't pay margin to virtually anybody. And we still run a fairly tight lean PL. Like e-commerce is not this like massively profitable business model. We're, we're in like mid to low teens EBITDA typically. And like we're probably staffed for growth, we're probably staffed appropriately to be able to handle more acquisitions and, and more revenue growth. But that, that's like a, a very just specific nuance of, of how we thought about the business is like we want to own all the cost centers and control everything all the way through so we can get the best outcome for whatever we get into. It's really interesting. I'm going to ask a really specific question and we can edit this out after if you want. What percentage of your revenue right now is in OPEX? We target OPEX globally or payroll? OPEX globally. Let's all op, all OPEX together. Yeah. I'm probably going to get this wrong so I'm not looking at it and details are not my favorite thing. Including payroll, OPEX all is part. probably 15 to 20%. I'm, yeah. I'm probably wrong. It's somewhere in that range. Yeah. So people is like 12%, which is kind of the yeah. big one. And if we take rent and software and like a couple other kind of just direct overheads that might be i don't know three four five percent so probably 16 17 18 maybe for opex that plus 12 to 13 to 14 percent bottom line ebitda 
and then we got contribution margin above that probably is, is roughly where we land. Yeah, yeah, that that's great. It's okay. Yeah. Tell me afterwards if we need to edit that out. The because one of my big theories about e-commerce is that like part of the way that that D2C works at least is that OPEX scales really well basically. That like as a percentage of revenue as your revenue grows, OPEX can can really shrink as a percentage. I think it's maybe the number one place that and CAC over enough time can end up creating meaningful efficiencies in the business by keeping those two small. Whereas on the other hand, I think it's really, really hard to get margin back on everything that goes into your cost of delivery bucket on your PL. Like there is some economy of scale on those things, right? You order in larger quantities and sure, sure you get some efficiencies on that, but it's it's in the realm of a few points of margin. And whereas with OPEX and CAC, as your business grows, you can like cut those in half and then cut them in half again over time. You know, you, you can really do a lot depending on the shape of your business. Now, in an aggregator, that can be trickier because you have to run nine brands at a time in your case. So like, it's maybe not as obvious initially, at least, that the OPEX is going to shrink as a percentage of revenue. But if you can do the OPEX percentage that you're talking about across that big of a portfolio, like to me, that's that's like a really good indication that your model is working. We set like a stair step of basically like, when do we want to make investments, software, hiring, whatever the fixed OPEX expenses are, when do we want to ratchet that up for the next thing, growth, M&A, whatever it is, or when is it that we are harvesting excess gross margin through peak sales, exogenous demand from like just people want to buy stuff. Like sometimes costs don't move and, and we just have a great month and like it's very cash accretive. It's just kind of this balance of like through time, we just kind of steadily stair-stepped it. And Justin's done a great job making sure we don't like get over our skis on fixed expenses and just trying to build the team like in a logical fashion. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it really speaks to, it's interesting. You, you framed this as a partnership thing, but actually hearing you reflect on the alignment of partnership and capitalization and the way you guys are trying to build it, I can really hear that in your answers that you're thinking about like, okay, your big picture on the business and the M&A side and some of those things and the capitalization side relative to Justin's skills on the operational side, like being able to keep that OPEX where we're saying there, being able to think about how you how you grow relative to the operational complexity and how you're building the operations to handle the growth. To me, it feels very much like what you're saying is true, that the, the two of your skills and shared vision is working down through the organization and is a big part of what makes you successful. I get asked questions that people assume that the e-commerce Hold Co CEO guy should know, and I literally have no idea, but Justin will know the exact answer. Like, how many packages did you ship last week? And I'm like, more than a couple hundred, less than, I, 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 have no, I don't know how many packages left. I know what kind of revenue we're into this year. I know what I'm thinking about with an M&A deal of like the pros and cons, like all these ideas are in my head, but I can't do the operations. And then Justin is the exact opposite. He's like very much in the weeds and I need a high level conversation and I have to like find time on his calendar to like get out of meetings to like come brainstorm with me because I need his input and, and value him as, as my business partner. And it's this interesting tension of how the two of us focus differently. And it's definitely played off very well for us over the years. Yeah. Okay. I want to shift the conversation a little bit because one of the things I love talking to people in your position in is what makes a good e-commerce business because you, you've now, you own a lot of them and you've probably looked at a whole bunch more than that to think about buying or not. And so you've developed some theses. You mentioned a couple of them already. So let, let me just let me just recap those back and then you can add more to them or not if you want. You mentioned that there is a complex supply chain, which gives you some moat around competitors, I assume. And you also mentioned exogenous demand as two things that really help make the business pretty durable. And durability seems like a core function of part of what you guys are trying to build. Anything more you want to say about those two things and then anything else you want to add to that about when you guys look at businesses, what do you think makes a really good e-commerce business? 
We've definitely gotten better at this over time, and I've learned a lot of this from the likes of you and others that broadly share opinions and feedback on the internet about this. So I'm as much a student here as I am somebody sharing their opinion. So I've appreciated things you and, and Taylor and others have shared over the years. But I think where we live today is a place where we want a good view and durability of customer demand. And so I've really decided that a business that can rely on demand capture, Google, search, shopping, affiliate, SEO, a little bit of email, Amazon, and like very little demand creation, minimal Facebook, YouTube, minimal organic social. If that's a good profitable business that can be steady stated, that's a great base to build on. If we can then do demand creation on top of it because we can do storytelling or problem solution marketing, like those are all, all, all big wins. But I want to see like really good durability of demand on capture only and a good competitive defensible market position where I think whether interest rates go up or down, whether we have a recession or not, there's a enduring value that the product delivers to the customer and the quantity of demand for that product will remain steady such that whether or not things happen in the world, CAC goes up or whether Facebook iOS, like all this stuff happens, we will still have a good base of revenue. That is like fundamentally what I get to because after that, We've got Justin, we've got a team. Like operations is, is relatively a, a checked box for us more often than not. Like, yeah, we do make mistakes and stuff goes out of stock. We have problems. Don't, don't take that the wrong way. But if I can just solve an M&A and strategy for knowing revenue on a pretty confident basis and less so of like click-through rate this week and conversion rate next week, but like the fundamental ability to deliver value at a high margin retail price and not get disintermediated next week or not have the demand be so flimsy it dries up or not rely only on new customer acquisition through hacking the algorithm this week. If I can just not do those things, we'll do a pretty good job operationally on turning a profit on that business. Yeah. So what ki what kinds of businesses, I don't know if you could talk about any of your specific brands or what, but what kinds of businesses meet those things? What are the businesses that have ongoing demand that work the way you said? Yeah. Uh, I think our fermentation business might be one of the higher quality businesses I've seen. So we make do-it-yourself fermentation supplies. If you want to make cheese, yogurt, sourdough bread, kombucha, or some exotic stuff like milk kefir, we make the products for that. And so we literally have a commercial kitchen where we ferment live cultures. We dehydrate them, we packet them, and we kit them. We sell them at an AOV of call it 35, 40 bucks, give or take, Amazon and D2C, plus some wholesale. People are always going to want to make their own healthy foods. The trend around fermentation and gut health is like ongoing and growing. And you, Andrew, the really smart marketing guy, can't just spin up a kombucha kitchen in your backyard in California next week and like compete with us at scale. So we have a cornered resource in manufacturing. We have a AOV that is hard to compete with at subscale. We're at, we're at scale and production and there's durable demand. People always want these products and it's a growing market. That to me is like one of the better stories and one of the better quality businesses we have. Okay, let me poke at that. So I assume there's also some LTV in that business too, right? People are probably coming Not and fermenting their own stuff. We don't, so we're seeing channel lead to Amazon. So there might be LTV that as the world wants one click and free shipping and prime, maybe we're losing it there. The LTV is not as good as one might think because the products, if you use them right, can be heirloom and you might not need to buy another starter culture. If you keep your culture alive, you're making kombucha for the rest of your life. So like by the time you need one, it might be a year or two. It's not as good as, you, as, as I want it to be, but we, we try. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, because well, what I was going to poke at, and actually now maybe that, that actually does work against my case, is like, why not 
go try to generate some demand on that product initially because you just described a, a brand that's in a space where there is demand right yeah there is demand right now for that of course but it's also like we're, we're gonna turn this podcast into the andrew j ferris consulting show and you're gonna show me what i did wrong with all these ads over the years no so hey listen listen i have an idea for some episodes and i maybe have one on in the future this is a, this is a good reason for people to like to for people to subscribe where i get some people who have a certain specific problem in their business as long as they're willing to share the exact numbers and we'll do it live and we'll and we'll just say like let's try to solve the problem right now here's what we need to do to accomplish it so if you want to do it and you're willing to share the numbers because that's the key you have to be willing to share the numbers otherwise it won't be that good of a podcast then we can go try and solve that problem we'll, we'll look at it and figure out the the facebook ads roadmap to pumping your fermentation business but and i'll do it for free so but yeah i i have one that maybe maybe is going to happen that way i would love to do it and if anybody's listening to this and they want to do that they want to say like hey you get a free hour consulting from me but you just have to publish it then they I can do that but i'm first in line because we're definitely doing it okay great i'm in podcast at ajfgrowth.com to get behind kelsey podcast at ajfgrowth.com email me tell me about it all right that'd be really fun so yeah well because what i was gonna say was in that specific space this is like health food fermentation gut health i hear that and i go like man go tell the world about that brand like that is it's fun it's interesting like Go tell everybody about it and go sell a whole bunch more and blow that thing up and get rid of your eight other stupid brands. Kelsey, kill your aggregator. I'm just kidding. So that is the place where you, as a deeper expert than me in demand generation, customer acquisition, and I'm like modestly dangerous, but you're definitely ahead of me by a lot. You could absolutely uncover and unlock that would grow that business in a way that in my opportunity set falls off the radar. And it's a good business, but I missed the chance to make it a slightly better or even phenomenally great business because I missed that unlock is 100% a feature and a bug of our business. So the big question for me, and this, this comes back to my slider bar, is how much can you actually operationalize that skill set? And the answer has to be you can at least some somewhat. And the reason why is that agencies exist. But the reason this is also definitely a problem is that agencies exist. And what I mean by that is everybody has bad experiences with agencies, including every agency I know run by great people doing their best to create a great product for their customers. Like they all have churn from pro from customers who are really frustrated that they got sold something and didn't get that experience. And it's because it's really hard to operationalize that skill set. And this is where I would say like, I didn't spend a good enough amount of time leveraging skills around teaching and training, frankly, and really clarifying my own point of view to like build that into 4x400 more, even though that was supposed to be our core skill. But this is something I do think that what you're getting at and your model really makes sense, which is actually demand capture is easier probably to operationalize. The skill set there is really something that you can just rinse and repeat on. And it's, it's even interesting talking to like Google Ads agency folks versus Facebook agency folks. The way that customers interact is just really, really different. And what they expect is just really, really different. We were talking about live events. Yeah, I sent our head of marketing and our head of paid to uh, Geek Out, like one of the well-known like D2C marketing events. And they were like yeah. the only people there that could talk about Google Ads and everybody else had never like spent any time on it. And it was kind That's of right. a whole running joke for a while. We spent like more on Google last year than on Facebook, which I think is kind of weird to the average like D2C person. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think that's a really interesting feature of your model that is different than others. So, okay, anything else that you want to say that makes a good business? Or maybe anything else that you say that you know takes a good business and makes it better? That actually might be more relevant to some of our audience. What do you guys do to make a good business better? Or do you do not? <laughs> Just buy a bunch of good yeah, businesses? I do think a fundamental part of our value prop has always tried to be 
we're an inch deep and a mile wide. There's things we can operationalize that are just hard for others. Kind of the typical, we're a, we're a good buyer of businesses. So if somebody hasn't figured out Clavio to the greatest extent, if your shopping feed isn't fully optimized, if supply chain, like we kind of make it up on the margins, I think. I don't think that makes for a good business. That just makes us a, a competitive operator and buyer of businesses. We did a couple turnaround deals this year that were a lot of fun. We got phenomenally good terms on some distressed assets. But I don't think there's a long list of people who could functionally execute that plan. We had the resources, the people, the working capital to like drop everything and go like secure a really good deal for us. There's no playbook for that. There's no repeatability behind that, but it's a great way to grow a holding company that's, that's privately held and, and privately capitalized. Before you move on, talk, talk more about that. What, what, how come you were able to do that? What made you guys uniquely positioned to be able to do that? couple things. One, just deal experience, like getting through transactions that are touch and go very quickly, being able to get very comfortable with legal docs and terms and like quickly negotiate and put resources towards doing the thing. Pause really fast. That is such an underrated skill in the world of e-commerce. That was something that I, that when I was CEO, I did not realize how little I knew there and how important it was. It would be really easy for somebody listening to this to breeze past that comment, but I think it's completely true. And when you look at like Maytab Bogle, who's like obviously talking to stress deals all the time on Twitter, he understands these things inside and out so deeply. And and same with like, I think of Bill Alessandro as well. I've called both of them for advice when of I did. Of course, They're, it's all aggregator people. It's all people who have done a bunch of deals. And that is a real skill set. Uh, they were both incredibly helpful to me in that conversation. And you just gave me like six rabbit holes for, for where I want to go with this. But there's a couple different types of CEOs. I think one of them is strategist, one's the product guru, one's the sales guy, one's the HR leader. One of them's the deal maker. And that's probably where I fall is like strategy and like going and doing deals. That's probably where I'm strongest. So that was certainly helpful. The other thing that was a learning for me was like, we have a platform. We literally have humans that can flex time. Our head of customer service can drop everything and go solve problems. We can put a guy in an airplane and he can go clean out a warehouse in Texas on two days notice. And that's what happened. We hired local labor and like, we cleared out like 16 semis in like three or four business days with a guy with a backpack. So like to have the ability to do that is a competitive advantage for us. I think maybe the learning for anybody listening to this that goes, hey, cool, must be nice, Kelsey is if you are interested in like deal making and buying competitors and all that kind of stuff, like do not underestimate the value of a platform. Your business, whatever it is, gives you an advantage versus a buyer who is not in business already. For us, we're farther ahead than most, but I think everybody has some advantages. Interesting. What were the other rabbit holes you wanted to go down? Chase down at least one or two of them. I think the, the types of um, CEOs was, was a big one of like yeah. knowing your own I, skill set of, yeah, I almost stopped you there again, too. Like, you should just expand on that a little bit more. Because I think this is something for people to know, even as they self-assess. Uh, like, what are, what are, what am I good at? Yeah, you're an entrepreneur or, or hired CEO. You get these, like, visions in your head of, like, oh, Andrew was, you know, this guy from an agency that did this roll-up of, of a hold co. And I see Sean Frank on Twitter from Ridge, and he's, like, the best marketer that, you know, ever walked the face of the earth. And, like, you see these people you want to compare yourself to. And it's like, we're not all Steve Jobs. There's a lot of ways to make a buck. We just talked about how my quote unquote aggregator Holdco model is like very different than what other people have done because it's a good fit for me. And like a certain dose of self-awareness and emotional intelligence, like planning for yourself of what you want and what you're good at probably moves the needle for a lot of people, whether you're running one business or, or six or eight or nine. Yeah, I think that's completely right. 
It's really interesting. I mean, I definitely experienced when I was when I was running for 400 that like somebody else on the team handled the deal making basically because that dot was not my skill set and it like and it wasn't expected to be. You know, there was another team member for that. But yeah, I think I think it's it's really good. All right, we're running out of time. Any last stuff you wanted to make sure we got to here before I tell you to promote your stuff? Nothing comes to mind. I, I uh, I'm glad to be back on the show. Happy to uh, chat with you about aggregators yeah. and we can yeah. do this again in a year or two and see what changes I've made along the way. The one thing I know for sure is next time we have a conversation, if it's not about uh, Facebook ads for kombucha kits, if it's about this stuff again, something, something will be different. And I think that's part of the fun and part of why I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, so let's now let's go to the part where people go follow you on the internet and that sort of thing. So at Kelsey Lyric on Twitter, that will be in the show notes, of course. I won't even bother trying to spell it for people because there's yeah, a couple don't. places where you... A couple, <laughs> couple landmines yeah. up on there. Yeah. The only ask is if you do own two or more businesses, I co-host a conference called HoldCoConf. It's a conference for holding companies, which basically means you own two or more businesses and you're trying to figure out all the problems that go with two or more businesses shared services and financing and like all this aggregator kind of stuff. Uh, it is not an e-commerce centric conference. We had hundred plus attendees last year, maybe three or four of us had digital businesses, but if that hits your radar at all, check out holdcoconf.com or send me a DM. Yeah, I, I think you should definitely do that. If like to me, if I was still running an aggregator, it would just be like a no brainer. Of course I would go to that because like there's it's just there are unique issues in a business that has multiple businesses. And so yeah, I love that. Go check that out. Again, the link for that is also in the show notes. So so definitely go give that a look. And then if you want to sell your business to Kelsey, Kelsey, what's the best way for somebody to get a hold of you if they want to sell you a business? Yeah, my, my email is not hard to guess. I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, if your message says you want to sell me your company, I will I will definitely open it. We do have a contact form for that on the 365 website. It's not always a good fit, but I'm always happy to have a conversation. And if I'm not interested, I'll at least try to give you some advice or, or help you. Whether it's distressed or healthy, just reach out and I'll give you a candid opinion and uh, happy to chat. Yeah, we'll, again, we'll link the th website as well so people can just go to that form if they want to sell you a business, which they may want to do. So, all right, man, thanks. I, I appreciate your time so much. This is one of my favorite conversations I've had on here in a while. I, I feel like I learned a lot from you in it and it was really helpful. So thanks, thanks for sharing. And yeah, go follow Kelsey in all the normal places. And um, yeah, thanks, man. Sometimes I do an interview where during the conversation, I can just feel myself learning a bunch. And I really felt that way in my conversation with Kelsey today. I hope you did too. Some of the stuff that he's talking about around the combination of goals, capitalization, aligning your business towards your lifestyle, man, that stuff is resonating with the way that I'm thinking about what I'm working on right now. I hope it did for you as well. Do go give Kelsey a follow. And, and like I said, if you want to sell Kelsey your business, reach out to him. Go check that out. All the places for all that are in the show notes go follow up there. Hey, I hope you liked this episode as much as I did. Like I said, either way, if you did or if you didn't, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. You can email me at podcast.ajfgrowth.com. I would just love to hear from you in any direction that you think. Maybe you, maybe you think Kelsey is totally wrong about all of that stuff. Well, tell me about it. Maybe we'll get Kelsey involved in the conversation as well. Also, if you want to say thank you to me for this show in any possible way, if you find value in it and, there's, and you want to pay that back just a little bit, there is a simple thing you can do and that is to share it with a friend if this episode is helpful to you. That is the number one thing you can do. And of course, ratings and reviews also help. I will be back with a solo episode next week. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure to not miss out on this. I also have a couple more really good interviews coming up, including actually 
having booked in the time between when I recorded with Kelsey and when I'm recording this outro, I have booked my first We Solve a Live Problem conversation like I alluded to with Kelsey, the idea where I'm going to bring on somebody, agreed to open up the books of her business and explain exactly what's going on. And we're gonna try and solve some problems in her business, quote unquote, live together and see if we can do that and make some real progress together in a short time. Record it all, send it to you. So maybe if you're experiencing the same problems, it'll be helpful. You're not gonna wanna miss miss out on that. I'll tell you more about that when it gets closer, but I'm actually really, really, really excited about that. I think it'll make for really fun content. So thanks again for listening. I will see you next time.